Our study today is entitled, Eyes Wide Open. Eyes Wide Open. Turn to your neighbor today and show them how wide you could open your eyes. How big? Oh, we have small eyes. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's <laughs> funny story. When, when we were younger, I, I went to a, a restaurant with my friends, and we ordered some pizza. And we were all sitting around, and it was taking a long time. There was a long table of us, a lot of us eating. It was on a Saturday night. I remember this so clearly. And uh, we were waiting for a pizza to come. And some of us were, you know, we're just sitting at the table quietly waiting. And one of my friends was sitting there across the table from me. And I remember the waitress came over and she goes, okay, wake up, pizza's here. And my friend looked up and he said, I am awake. <laughs> he has very small eyes, right? And uh, he had very small eyes. And uh, I don't know, that stuck with me for a while, you know, because sometimes it looks like we're sleeping, all right? And uh, sometimes it's hard to see if your eyes are closed, right? Um, but instead of saying, wake up, the pizza's here, I'm going to say, guys, wake up. We're getting into God's word today, okay? I don't want to see sleepy eyes today. Keep your eyes wide open, all right? And even if those are your eyes, I hope, you know, however you can see, I, I pray that you're going to be staying awake and focusing with me. Eyes wide open. The first verse we're reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And verse 12, as you remember, we were reading 1 Corinthians 13, it's that love chapter. And we finally get down to this one verse, a couple of verses we're studying through today, and we're looking at verse 12 as it's read in the message. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. I like that. I like that. We're squinting in a fog. We don't see things clearly now in our existence here on earth. Now, I got to ask you a question. How many of you have seen fog before? Yeah? All right. Normally in the morning, right? Normally in the morning. Um, now, sometimes that fog is so thick you could barely see what's a, just a few feet in front of you. If you've ever been driving a vehicle, going through the fog, that could be very dangerous. You, you don't quite know where you're headed. You can't quite see where the road might turn, all right? But for some reason, that fog makes it very difficult for us to, to navigate through. Let me ask you a question. How do you personally deal with physical fog? If you needed to get somewhere and it was foggy outside, what do you do? Slow down, full stop, move cautiously, fog lights, flashers, all the precautions, helping other people know, listen, I'm moving cautiously, please be careful around me, maybe, okay? You want to signal people, I'm not quite sure where I'm headed, but I'm trying to make my way. Some people won't even dare try and make it through the fog. They'll just wait until the fog has lifted, all right? Because if you travel slowly in the fog, you're risking so much more traveling through that fog, right? But like you said, some of us have fog lamps that help clear things a little bit. There's this, um, there was a fella who had a helicopter in California. And uh, unfortunately, his helicopter had crashed not long ago. And the pilot of this helicopter, he was trained for, to fly through special conditions. But any helicopter flying in certain spaces, they would need special permission or clearance to be able to fly through the fog. And uh, this was just this month, this past month, where it happened. The helicopter went up and um, they're still, I guess it's still under investigation, but the fog's gone. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they're gonna investigate this, but we know the pilot had special clearance to fly through the fog. And no matter how trained he might have been, you gotta ask yourself, what does a pilot flying use to make it through the fog? You're probably thinking, it's safer in the sky than it is on the ground, because there's less to bump into. True, but there was a statement made, and it's here on the right side of your 
handout from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And this is what it says about flying in the fog. Flying in fog is quite challenging, even for the most experienced of pilots. For pilots that are not as skilled, fog is an extremely dangerous and potentially deadly hazard. Each year, around 440 people are killed due to weather-related aviation accidents, including the conditions of low visibility and ceilings. Now, why are we talking about why are we talking about fog and pilots? Why are we talking about fog and pilots? Now, if you're in a car, or if you're in a helicopter or a plane, your point is you want to get from point A to point B. You're on a journey, you're traveling. And along that journey, while you're traveling, things might get foggy, and it might be hard to see. You might not be seeing things clearly. Flying in a fog could be extremely dangerous if you don't have the right tools. Now, sometimes the planes are already up there, okay? Fog usually happens a little closer to the ground. They don't advise pilots to land in fog because they can't see the ground where they're gonna land. When they come out the other side of that fog, all they have, they're relying on these instruments, the panels. There's a panel of instruments, gauges in their cockpit that help them figure out how balanced they are. But even the most experienced pilot could go through the fog and come out on the other side upside down without realizing they've completely spun upside down, okay? It could be very dangerous. Sometimes I feel that that's what our Christian walk is like. You know, we, we accept Jesus Christ and we get on this journey. We're getting on a journey of walking with his spirit. And his spirit, we can't see his spirit. And sometimes we don't understand his spirit and where he's guiding us and what God's doing. And sometimes a Christian journey, it feels like a fog, doesn't it? It's like you, you tell yourself, I know God's with me, but I don't feel him. I, I know he's with me, but how am I supposed to know for sure? And you're moving carefully forward in your journey. Now these gauges on the plane help guide the pilot through the fog. There's one that shows, okay, you're off balance. Your wings are uneven. S balance out, there's like this uh, fake horizon gauge that shows them, stay on this course. Stay level like this. Don't go left. Don't go right. You go off course. Stay on the course on that horizon. But they have a tool to help guide them. Could they see where they're going? No. But what they're relying on are these gauges that are in place that they're supposed to trust and rely on. Now, what if they notice that their plane is starting to tilt and that gauge is showing that they're a little crooked? What would happen if they start to tinker with those gauges, you know? Or like you've used a compass before and you try to get the north to point the right way on your compass. It's like you orient the compass to where you are instead of using it to help you figure out where you are in relation to everything else. You try to adjust it to suit you, all right? Sometimes I feel as Christians, we do this. We have the word of God, right? And sometimes we use God's word and we twist it to help us feel better about where we're at today. We twist it and we compromise his truth a little just so that we feel like we're still safe. Well, I've accepted Jesus, so I'm safe now. Hey, hold on. He's given us a guide to follow. He's telling us to focus on things unseen. What? Why is God telling us to focus on things unseen? If you can't see it, what are you supposed to trust as you're going through it? It requires some level of faith. But faith in what? If your faith is in those gauges and those gauges are there to help you stay the course, don't mess with the gauges. If God's truth is there to keep you on course, don't twist God's truth. His truth is truth and it remains. It's forever. All right? What is it like to be in the midst of fog? How do you externally, how do you feel with, how do you deal with external fog and how does it affect your internal being? Some people use GPS. 
You're not sure where you're supposed to turn next. You can't see the street signs. So while you're driving in the fog, it says, turn right. And you're not sure, turn right where? Where am I turning? You trust the GPS, so you take the right turn because that's where the GPS told you to go. You don't even have to know where you're going before you get in the car nowadays. Do you know that? Before, if you wanted to travel to your friend's house, you better have known the way. Or you better have had a map and know how to read it. Now, you just get in the car, you don't even know where you're going, and you just trust the GPS to tell you where to go. But even the GPS doesn't see it all. Right? And then it says recalculating, recalculating, recalibrating, right? Even the GPS changes its mind. What do you trust? Do you trust what you see with your own eyes? And how confidently do you move through the fog in your life? There's a little story here that we read in uh, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles with you, you could open up there. The blue book in front of you, there's a pew in the pew. You open up to Luke 24, and there's a story about, this is about the day of Jesus' resurrection. The day of Jesus' resurrection. And on the day of Jesus' resurrection, we might remember that Jesus was crucified on a cross on Friday. Friday evening, before the sun went down, um, Nicodemus came, put him in a tomb so his body could rest there in the tomb. And throughout the Sabbath, there was no activity. And then early Sunday morning, some of Jesus' friends were coming down to the tomb to visit him. The women came down to visit him at the tomb. And what did they find? they found that the stone guarding the tomb was rolled away. And they rushed inside to see, and there was no body in the tomb. And there was just the, the, the death cloths that were used to wrap Jesus' body left there in the tomb. And then they came out, and there was an angel that said, why do you come looking for Jesus? Don't you know he's not here? He's alive. So these women come down, they see with their own eyes, they are witness to the fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, and an angel tells them that Jesus is alive. He has risen from the grave. They go, they run, and tell the other disciples. Who was it? Was it Peter? Peter went running down to that tomb. He had to see for himself, and indeed it was true. What was told him was true. He had to see it with his own eyes in order for him to believe it. Sure, Jesus wasn't in the tomb, but where is he? Right? They didn't know, they didn't see, but there was all this going on. Now imagine if you were a follower of Jesus up to this point. You were a follower of Jesus because he was a Messiah. The Messiah that was supposed to help restore Jerusalem, restore the temple, restore Israel. He was supposed to come and bring these people out of their obscurity and help this develop this new kingdom, okay? And the man that you put all your faith, hope, and trust in to be that Messiah, you see him die on a cross. Now remember, Jesus had been teaching for years, at least three years with his disciples. Jesus had been teaching and declaring that, you know what, you could tear down the temple and in three days it will be built up again. All right? Jesus was foreshadowing, he was foretelling, he was prophesying his own death and that he would rise again. Now, even though they heard all these teachings, not all of them were clear about what he was saying. Maybe they all had their hearts set on, you're supposed to restore the Israelites. Maybe they were thinking, in sm- they were thinking small potatoes, Okay. But this is where the story starts, I think it's verse 13. After Jesus died, his followers felt lost and hopeless. In spite of hearing Jesus teaching for three years, many of them still had very limited understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Cleopas and his unnamed companion were traveling to Emmaus from Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' resurrection. It says in verse 16, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. 
So Jesus was raised from the grave, and now here he is walking with some of his followers, and his followers don't even recognize him. They were kept from recognizing him. Okay? It wasn't until later that evening, after having walked 11 kilometers with them and sitting down to break bread, it was at that point where they were breaking bread, and Jesus did what he always did. He broke the bread, and the two of them in that moment were able to recognize that it was Jesus. They were finally allowed to recognize that it was Jesus who had been talking with them the whole time. Now, as they made their way to Emmaus, the two disciples saw that it was getting dark, and it looked like Jesus was going to keep going. So they begged Jesus to stay. They didn't know it was him yet. They begged Jesus to stay. Don't go out in the dark. Stay with us a little longer. Let's keep talking about these things. Jesus was asking them questions. What happened in Jerusalem, right? Everybody knew what happened in Jerusalem. So they're like, seriously? You haven't heard about what happened in Jerusalem? So they didn't think it was Jesus, right? It's almost like Jesus was playing dumb. But Jesus was just drawing out their understanding first. And I believe the reason why they were kept from recognizing Jesus in the first place was because Jesus still had something to teach them from the scriptures. And he didn't want them getting distracted with their amazement and awe that Jesus is alive, he's here again. No, he didn't want them to be distracted by this miracle. He wanted them to know the truth and not be carried away by what they see with their physical eyes. He didn't need their physical eyes open to recognize him. He wanted their spiritual eyes to be opened. And as he continued to speak with them, they, they longed for more. So they sat down and broke bread. And in that moment when they finally recognized him, Jesus disappeared. Imagine that. They finally recognize him and it's like, oh Lord, boom, he's gone. It's like they can't hang on to him any longer. But Jesus had left something more important with them the lessons that he wanted them to learn. He spoke the scriptures to them and helped reveal the understanding and scriptures he wanted them to have. They said to one another in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? I love that passage where it says that the word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Jesus was the Word. More important than his disciples seeing him with their physical eyes, that he had actually risen, was that their spiritual eyes are open to the truth of his Word. Friends, we don't see Jesus today. He's not walking around today. We don't need him to be doing miracles and signs and wonders for us. But he's given us his Word. More importantly, he's given us his Spirit to help us navigate through his word. He's given us his spirit to help us understand his truth. You see, you might be looking for God to prove something to you through miracles, modern day miracles. You want to see someone actually get healed from the wheelchair. God has given you more, friends, to focus on. He wants you to focus on the truth that's in his word. He wants to open up your spiritual eyes. Look at what it says here in Job 23, verses 8 to 12. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than daily bread. I think sometimes, like Job in his situation, when things start going bad for us, we feel like we're in a fog. Sometimes we might feel like giving up. Sometimes we feel like we just need to sit down and wait for everything to clear up, okay? But God has given us some tools. 
he's given us some gauges. Like I said, he's given us his word and he's given us his spirit. We don't tinker with the truth, okay? We can measure ourselves up against the truth to see where we're falling out of line, all right? If we stop keeping in step with the spirit and go our own path, there are gauges that God has in our life to call us back to stay on the path of righteousness that he set out before us. Have you ever wondered, where is God? You may have heard it said that he is here, he's present with you now. You may not always sense his presence, but what do you do during those uncertain times? What is your guide as you make your way through the fog? I like how Job put it, I seek God and I don't know where he's at, but I have followed his commands closely. I have remained faithful to the path that he put before me. And that is what he clings to. That's what he hangs on to. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than daily bread. God is more concerned with your spirit, your spiritual life, the inside of you. He's more concerned with your heart and your mind than he is with your physical body. Right? How many of you like to take a shower at least once a week? At least once a week. It's hard sometimes, you know? <laughs> Just say it. But if you like to take a shower at least once a week, it tells me that you like to take care of your body, yes? How many of you, when you are hungry, like to actually put food in your mouth to fill your belly? Might be McDonald's, might be carrot sticks. Whatever it is, whether healthy or not healthy, I know that you eat something to satisfy your hunger. You're taking care of your body, okay? When you're feeling lonely, how many of you reach out to a friend or at least turn on Netflix? <laughs> or social media, okay. No one's putting their hand up because you don't want to embarrass yourself, but when you're lonely, you reach out. I mean, we're made for community, all right? And we all know what it's like to be lonely at some level, okay? And when we're lonely, that says, listen, something's not right. I wasn't made to be alone. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So what do you do? You try to find company, all right? Whether the company's good or bad, doesn't matter. You're going out there trying to find company, all right? Whether it be with people or people on the TV, okay? Just to get through the fog. We take care of our physical bodies when we're in a fog. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're sleepy, we take a nap, right? So we take, of our, take care of ourselves physically, but how are we taking care of ourselves spiritually? When we're in a spiritual fog, what do we do to satisfy our spiritual hunger, our spiritual thirst? Do we feed on the bread of life? Do we feed on the word of God? Do we drink of his spirit to satisfy that thirst, that, that hunger, that yearning in our soul when we're lonely, when we feel disconnected? Do we reach out and cry out to God even if it sounds like complaining? Why me? Why now? You are reaching out for something when you're in the fog. Okay. But what is your guide as you make it through the fog? What our eyes see the first instance in scripture to having open eyes, can anybody guess? When did it happen? The first instance in scripture where it talks about having open eyes. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when? When they disobeyed God? When they disobeyed God, all of a sudden their eyes were open. They opened their eyes and they realized what? I'm naked. <laughs> they didn't even know what naked was, but it's like, whoa, something's different. I am naked. Their physical eyes, like the glory that was covering them, had been removed, and they started to see life through their physical eyes. All of a sudden, like, yeah, you were naked all along, but there was glory shining over you. But when you disobeyed, that glory lifts, and guess what? Now you're seen with your physical eyes. So we tend to look at life through our physical eyes. Who do you want to be friends with? You use your eyes. Those people look cool. I like what they're wearing. 
Look at the movies that they watch. Look at the food that they're eating. I want to go hang out with them. You use your physical eyes, right? It's the first thing that draws you. Guys, when you're choosing a girlfriend, what is the first thing you look at? If they have a ring. <laughs> Face, yeah. You know, it's funny. I asked the guys, and most of the women are answering. You know? <laughs> Yeah, when, because men, we're more, we're more visual creatures, okay? We're more visual creatures. And when men look at women, maybe it's different for everybody, you know? Um, for me, one thing that captured me was hair. There's something about long hair. My wife's long hair in particular. Um, there was one time, we were, we were friends, and for as long as I knew Bev, she had long hair. And I always thought, wow, you look good with long hair. I never liked her, but I knew that it looked good on her. And um, one day when we were friends, she decided to get a haircut. And it was a little shorter than I had liked. I'm just her friend, so it didn't, like, what right do I have to say anything? I'm not her boyfriend. But I remember seeing her, and I was just like, whoa, what happened to you? <laughs> you know? After that, she had never cut it that short ever again. <laughs> um, but I was looking at her with my physical eyes, right? But it wasn't until you start spending time with those friends or spending time with that person you're choosing to be with that you start to learn more about their character. You start to learn more about what they, their likes, their dislikes, how they behave, what their true attitude is towards certain people or things, and you start to see their heart. So at first we see with our physical eyes, but we don't get the full picture until we start to spend time. The more we spend time, the more we could get to know their heart. So the eyes of our heart are opened up to see the true person lying beneath all the makeup, all right? Or the nice suits, or the nice phones, the nice bags, the nice car, the nice paycheck, okay? What sits beneath everything that you feel makes you significant? God is looking into our heart. So this first instance of having our eyes open, our physical eyes. And then in the New Testament, in Ephesians 1, 15 to 19, you could read it on your own, the Apostle Paul is praying for believers in Ephesus. He's praying that they will have eyes open to who we are in Christ. Question, do you want to know the Lord better? Not sure? Yes? Maybe, right? Sure, why not? Do you want to know the Lord better? Yes. yes? And maybe you don't, and that's cool. You know, like, I pray that you do want to know him better day by day. We should know that the hope that we have, we should know the hope that we have, the glorious inheritance and great power available to all who believe. These are the things that are worth seeking and seeing. Paul is praying that all believers' eyes would be opened to this hope, to this glorious inheritance, and this great power that is available to us. Maybe you don't care about those things. Maybe you just care about your physical life. You want the better job, you want the better car, you want the better-looking girl or the better-looking guy. You care so much about what other people see of you. But friends, do you care about what God sees of you? You could fix everything on the outside and the inside is still rotten, right? When you're out with your friends, you're the best dancer at the clubs. When you're drinking with your buddies, you could drink the most and say, I hold my liquor best. All right? When you go karaoke, oi. <laughs> you pick up that microphone, you try to prove something. Right? So you add more reverb, <laughs> more echo. Sounds good. Because we care so much about what other people see. But we start to compromise. See, we go to church. And we say, well, I'm at church now, so I'm going to 
change this gauge and tweak it a little so I'm not that good dancer anymore. I'm going to be that guy that looks awkward worshiping. But at least I'm showing up, you know? So we tweak it a little bit. We're sinners outside, and then we pretend we're saints on the, here in the church. But when we go outside there, friends, remember, you're still a saint. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint who might sometimes stumble. You're a saint that might sometimes get caught in the fog. But friends, when you're in the fog, don't get lost again. Hey? When you can't see clearly on this journey, don't compromise again. It's not worth it. You think you could make it through the fog based on what? Your own eyes? Sometimes God allows you to go through a fog because he has an important lesson for you to learn. Just like on that road to Emmaus, he did not reveal himself to the people, but he was speaking his truth. He was speaking his heart to these people on the road. And they heard the word, and they believed their faith had been strengthened because of what they heard. And it felt like their hearts were burning on fire when that scripture was being spoken to them. Their spiritual eyes were open. You ever uh, fallen asleep for a long time? Took a really long nap? And then you woke up and someone had opened the window? And the sun is right on your face? What happens when you open your eyes, wipe the sleep from your eyes? What happens? Oh, my eyes, it's burning. It's burning. Why are your, your physical eyes burning? Because you were so accustomed to the darkness. In the same way, when God's truth comes alive in us, friends, the more impact it has, the more conviction that comes over us when his truth is spoken to our heart, we might be accustomed to the darkness, to the fog, to the sinful, worldly life because of all of our desires. But friends, when God's truth pierces through that darkness, it burns. It burns a holy fire. And that holy fire helps you see things more clearly. Do you have a passion for God? Do you want to know the Lord better? Do you want the fog to be lifted? How do we make sense of this all? Why does God let us go through fog? What a cruel thing it is. He creates us, then he lets us go through fog. That's not nice, you know? How do we make sense of what God is doing? Look at what it says here in Jeremiah 20, verse 18. Now, Jeremiah is this prophet who's like really melancholy. And he's like, if you ever want to have a lot of drama in your day, read through Jeremiah. All right? There's a lot of like, wow, this guy's a downer, you know? But I, I love the book of Jeremiah still because it's so honest. Look at Jeremiah 20, verse 18. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Kawawa. <laughs> I didn't ask to be born. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I, I used to say stuff like that all the time. You know, my parents, they're trying to guide me and they're trying to teach me stuff. And Tim, you can't keep doing things like that. You know, it's like that's not the way God wants us to live. And, you know. And I'm like, why do you hate me so much? I don't need to change. You're not the boss of me. I didn't ask to be born. When they say, as long as you're part of this family, if you're in this household, this is the way we do things. I swore to myself, when I grow up and I become a dad, I'm never going to talk like that. <laughs> yeah, right. You hear it every day in my house. This is my house. <laughs> You're my kid. Come on. God gave you to me so I could teach you. <laughs> so I'm talking to them. And, and seriously, um, earlier this week, uh, even my mom heard it. Um, I was working with my mom in the kitchen, my mom. And she heard um, my son calling up from downstairs. And he goes, You're not the boss of the whole universe. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't my son, it was my nephew, this guy. <laughs> how old are, how old are you? 
William, William's four years old, and they came over for a PA day, right? Their parents went to work, and I got to adopt their children for, for a few hours yesterday. And this four-year-old comes up to me, and he said, can I play with this? Can I play with that? I said, absolutely. But when you're done playing, we're going to put it away. That's the rule. So he went, he was playing, he walked away, played with something else. I said, excuse me, Will, are you still playing with these things? No. I said, okay, could we put it away? And he came up to me laughing. He goes, ha you're not the boss of the whole universe. <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I'm not the boss of the whole universe, but where are you right now? Uncle Tim's house. I said, that's right, you're in my house. And in my house, guess what? These are the rules, all right? You're not the boss of me. Now I sound just like my parents. <laughs> Why did I ever come out of the, room, the womb? <laughs> to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Can you sense that the writer here, he's trying to make sense of life in this question? At some point, we all ask that question, what is the purpose of life? Have you ever asked that question? Yeah, what am I here for? What's all this existence about? What am I, where am I supposed to be headed? What does God really want from me? You know, God created us for a purpose. And that's it. Everybody has a purpose. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you know what your purpose is? Yes. Some of us do. Some of us still waiting. All right, let's look at this. This is a kicker, guys. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be ma made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted to, us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Is that beautiful? It reveals your purpose, guys. Sometimes we think our purpose is, well, what do I have to do? No. God didn't create you a human doing. He created you a human being. He wanted you to exist for one purpose. So that he could love you. You exist. Your purpose in life is to be loved by God. We studied about how love gives, right? But it was Valentine's yesterday, right? And it's like you want to give something to your partner. Why? So you don't get in trouble for forgetting Valentine's. <laughs> it better be something good, you know? And you go to the grocery store, and that's the only time you see all men in the grocery store. Last minute Valentine's Day shopping. I gotta go get that box of chocolate, you know, and the supermarkets know it too. They put it right at the front of the store so the men don't have to get lost. They try to help us out. Even in the card section, most of them, they're made, these Valentines, they're really made from a man to a woman most of the time, all right? A woman could get any card, and the guy's like, oh, thanks for the card. Love you, hon. Smooch. You know? But they give the guys so much reading material. And if you don't read, getting through that whole card section is difficult because you're not sure which card you're going to give. All right? And they put all the cards out there in the front. And we think, love is giving, so I have to buy something to show how much I love them. And the woman judges her man's love by, I wonder if he'll remember me. Is he going to get me flowers? One or a dozen? Are they long stem roses? Oh, he got me chocolate. It better be the kind I like. And they judge their partner's knowledge of them based on how they receive that love. Ladies, Valentine's, is about giving. And you're like, but I give all the other days of the year. It's just one day that he has to remember. Love is about giving, 
but we've created a culture to help, uh, we've created a culture not to help, <laughs> a culture where love is about what you can get and what you could judge, all right? Oh, he doesn't love me because he was talking to somebody else and they were laughing. What? Let's put it this way. There's a husband and a wife. Husband and a wife. And the wife is nagging, nagging, nagging. Why don't you pick up your socks? I'm always cooking for you. Why can't you help with this? And the husband's like, okay, I, I picked up my socks. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take you out for dinner. Okay, is that what you want? And he, he's trying to give and trying to prove his love to his wife. And she's still not buying it because she's not getting what she wants out of him. The man goes over to the counter to buy some roses for his wife. And the girl behind the counter makes a, a little quip. Goes, or not a quip, she just makes a statement. Oh, I, I hope your wife enjoys these flowers. And the guy chuckles and he goes, <laughs> I hope so too. And they both start chuckling at the counter. The wife is sitting outside in the car looking at this interaction. What is he doing? Why is he talking to that young girl? Why are they laughing together? She's seeing with her physical eyes what she wants to see. She's judging their, him and their relationship. She's living her own reality of their relationship based on what she chooses to see with her own physical eyes. Does she know his heart? Was she silent long enough to hear his heart? She didn't even give him a chance to come and bring the flowers and recite the, his vows all over again. He didn't give, she didn't give him a chance to come over with the flowers and just woo her with a song. Whatever special thing he had inside to express his heart. Friends, a lot of the time in our Christian journey, we are like that nagging wife. We don't take time to know God's heart. We demand things from God and expect him to work for us so that we feel better in that relationship with him. And then when you see another believer enjoying their relationship with God, you say, that's fake, that's phony, nobody loves God that much, forget it. Maybe you become jealous. Why can't I have that sort of relationship with God? Why do I keep falling into old traps? Why am I still miserable? Why did I come out of the womb to experience this terrible existence? Why am I stuck in a fog? Friends, instead of getting stuck in that fog, I want to encourage you to stay focused on those gauges. One of those gauges that God gives us is his love. His love that never changes. His love that never fails. His love that could transform you, that gives you everything that you need. His love that can heal a broken heart. His love that brings peace and joy no matter your circumstance in life. His love is powerful. It is so great. That's why we sing these songs when we worship him of how great his love is. His love that restores us. Your purpose in life, friends, is to be loved by God. Let me hear you say it. My purpose is to be loved by God. Once more. My purpose is to be loved by God. See, because in the church, we, we say, listen, you exist to glorify God. Yes, that's true. But how do we glorify him? We say, as a Christian, you need to love God with all your heart. He commands it of us. Guess what, friends? Loving God and loving others comes unnaturally. It's not natural for us to be loving. It's not natural for us to give. It's natural for us to be selfish and grabby and take. That's why when a baby is born, wah! 
feed me, wah, change me, wah, sing me a song, wah, take a picture of me and post it on Facebook, wah, <laughs> carry me, hold me, love me, love me. But we can't stay children forever. We can't stay children forever. As we grow, we start to learn the complexities of this life, the complexities of our reality. And things get even more uncertain when we grow and grow. But we realize that there's more to life than what we get. But our purpose in being created is to be loved by God. Look at what it said in Revelation 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you made all things. Everything existed and was made because you wanted it. Because he wanted it, because he willed it, because it's his pleasure he created all things. Why does he deserve the honor, glory, and power and praise? Because he created it all. It's all his. God exists to receive all that acknowledgement. That's why he exists. Why do we exist? To receive all the love that our creator has for us. That's why we exist. Because we cannot love our neighbor until we have received the love of God. We cannot follow God's commands to love God wholeheartedly and love our neighbor as ourselves until we have received the love of God. So you don't have to do anything. You just need to receive God's love first. And then he commands you to do what is unnatural. Do you need to be commanded to eat? No, when you're hungry, you know it, you eat. Do you need to be commanded to sleep? When you're tired, you're sleepy, you sleep. Why do we need to be commanded to love? Because naturally, we are selfish and prideful. We take instead of giving, right? We were created for God's pleasure and his purposes. At some point in creation, we failed. We stopped giving God pleasure in our existence. We stopped living for his purposes. Instead, we lived for our own. So we failed. So God recreated us in Christ Jesus to be a new creation for his pleasure and his purpose. We were created for your pleasure, for your presence. Thank you for the way that you love us. Friends, stop trying to do. Stop trying to do anything for God. If you have not yet learned how to be what God wants you to be, he wants you to be a recipient of his love a recipient of his grace, a recipient of all that he is, so that you could learn how to love him well. Stop interrupting him when he's trying to express his heart to you. Listen patiently. Do the kind and patient thing. Be slow to speak. <laughs> Quick to listen. Be slow to anger. Learn God's heart. Receive all that God has for you. You know that's my prayer here every Saturday. Lord God, open up our eyes so that we could see you, so that we could know you. Stir up something fresh and something new and something life-giving. Lord God, continue to work on the inside of me. Here I am. Have your way in me. That's always my prayer. It's my prayer for you too, friends, that you would continue to Seek God with your whole being. 
Open the eyes of your heart to him so that you could see him and know his heart. He's still recreating us for his pleasure and his purpose, making us holy. Our last section is, in the beginning, in the meantime, and in the end. What does it say there in the beginning of the Bible? Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is talking about when? In the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of our entire existence. The beginning of this world. The beginning of time. Here in this world, we are bound by time and space. Who created this time? Who created this space? It was God. In the beginning, God. There was nobody else, just God. There was nobody capable of doing what God did. In the beginning, there was God. And what did God do? In the beginning, God created. When you create something, there's a purpose in what you're creating. You don't create something just to see, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder how this is going to turn out. I mean, God knows how things are going to turn out. So he doesn't have to try and figure it out. He's not experimenting. He created. It didn't say in the beginning God experimented. It didn't say in the beginning he wrote a hypothesis. In the beginning God created. He had a purpose in everything that he created. And, and what did he create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. This is everything. This is the best opening to any book that has ever been written in history. Because this one line, these 10 words, They point at our entire existence and God's purpose in it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates the spaces and then he fills it, right? God created the spaces and then he filled them appropriately. What was his purpose in creating the heavens and the earth? You might be sitting here today and be like, okay, Tim, who cares? It's just a verse. It's a verse that has God's purpose in it. He created the heavens and the earth and then he created you with a purpose as well. What's your purpose? To be loved by God. So in the meantime, here we are. We're reading 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Before we do, let's go back to the first verse here in our handout. And then we'll, we'll read straight through. It says, we don't see, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Verse 13, but for right now, until, the, until that's completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Here are the three things. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Faith, hope, and love. 
Friends, do you realize that our faith is based on all that God has already given us to know? God gives us his truth. He gives us his promises. And, you know, we could have faith and trust in God as we come to know him more. So faith, you know, God created as well. He created on the seventh day a, a space of time, a time of rest on the seventh day, okay? Through the whole creation story, it said the sun went up, the sun went down, and that was the first day, then the sun up and down, and it's the second day. But on the seventh day, it didn't say that anymore. It's just he rested. On the seventh day, he rested. And it gives us this picture that it kind of just kind of lingers and goes on forever, this rest, okay? He was just being. He wasn't doing anymore. He didn't need to create anymore. He was just being. He was resting, okay? And he creates this Sabbath rest as part of the creation story, pointing to the rest that we're going to find in Jesus Christ one day. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. rest. That we find our Sabbath rest in the person of Jesus Christ. Feels like I'm going down this rabbit hole. Because when you're linking together God's story, God's Bible, his, his story, it, it is indeed a story. Okay? It's not meant to be broken up like an encyclopedia with verses and all that. It's meant to just tell God's story. And if you miss the point of his story, friends, you can't just take your favorite parts and cling to that. You have to take the whole thing, okay? Because it's all revealing one big thing. It's all declaring who God is and his purpose for us. If you're living in a fog and you treat the Bible like an encyclopedia of good feelings, then all you get are those little moments of good feelings. But until you appreciate his love letter to us in its entirety, its totality, this is God's heart being expressed to us. Will you take the time to know him? This is God's heart expressed to us. Do you want to grow in your relationship with God? Spend time in his word, friends. Are you stuck in a spiritual fog today? Stay close to his word, friends. He will guide you through all things. And in all things, he's working together for the good of those who love him. You can't love God until you've allowed him to love you first. And you can't say that you've let God love you if you're still hiding from him. The disciples on that road to Emmaus, they didn't fully appreciate the time that they spent with Jesus until their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus is with me. Right? Then they appreciated their time with Jesus. Maybe you're reading your Bible day by day, but you're not spending time with God. You're just reading your Bible. Right? There's a difference. Don't read the Bible just to get through it. Don't read the Bible just to say, I did it. Bible in a year, 10 minutes today, read it to know God. All right? It's a good story, friends. And in that story, it, oh man, it, it gives purpose. When we read through it, we see exactly how God loves us. So faith has to do with the things we know of God. He's a faithful God, so I could trust him. That addresses my past, Okay? Hope focuses on the future. We cling to God's promises. He gives us hope that through the fog, don't worry. You might see dimly now as though walking through a fog, but one day you will see clearly and we'll see each other face to face. That's the hope that we have, that Jesus is coming again and we get to live with him face to face. That's hope. And the third gauge that God gives us to live by, he gives us our faith, he gives us this hope, and he gives us love. Love, love extravagantly. 
Love doesn't mean I'm going to take God's love. I'm going to take God's love, fill my pockets with his love. I, I have God's love. What do you have? No. No, to love is to give. But you can't give what you don't have. So if you haven't received God's love, don't try going out loving other people right now. Because what are you offering them? A tainted love. We want the pure love of God so we can reveal him and glorify him. That's our purpose, yeah? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He had a purpose in that. So we did in the beginning. We have in the meantime, there's some notes here on our sidebar and a slide here as well. In the meantime, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here we walk by faith and not by sight. Okay? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Okay? They shall see his and his shall be on their foreheads. All right? In the meantime, we have this faith, this hope, and this love. Okay? We walk by faith, not by sight. Be pure in heart. And there's a promise in that, that we will, we have the hope of seeing him face to face. Amen? But the greatest of these things is love. Guys, don't tweak your faith so that other people will chew on it too. You don't compromise or water down God's truth. You don't add sweetness to it. You just, you know what, just truth is truth. Don't taint it, all right? Love is love. We don't love the way that the world loves. We love the way that God loves us, okay? Don't taint God's love to say things like, you need to accept everybody's sense of reality. If they believe that that's what they are, then you have to say that's what they are. If a boy comes up to you and says, I am really a hippo, then you have to say, okay, boy, you're a hippo. If you, if you don't agree with him, then you don't love him. You're a bigot. No, that's the way the world wants you to learn to love. And that's a lie. Do not tweak the gauge of love that God has given us. We come and learn of God's love first. And from him, we learn how to love each other best. And don't tweak the promises. Somebody still wants to learn more about God or you're trying to invite them to your access group or maybe to church and you're trying to hook them. You're trying to advertise. Oh, come. You know, there's good food. The music is sometimes good, sometimes not good. You know? <laughs> and you try and advertise, you know, and make it cool. You don't even share what God has done in your life with them. You know what sort of message that sends? Well, I'm part of this elite club, and it's working out great for me, and your life sucks, so you need more Jesus. Come on with me. Where's the love, man? Like, that ain't right. All right? That's not how we do it. If you want, if you want to learn to love, start with prayer. When you pray, say, Father God, here I am. I open my heart to you. I receive all that you have for me. Teach me your ways. Help me to love your word. Help me to live by your spirit. I want to go where you lead me. Let me be your servant. Where you go, I will go. Where you sit, I will sit. Where you rest, I rest with you. Find yourself in Christ. Never leave him. Abide in him always, okay? He still has more for us. There's a promise here. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, there was a vision that was given to John, and God told him to write it down. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe 
every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old, old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Bible starts with God creating the heavens and the earth. Jesus, before he left, he encouraged his followers, his disciples. Don't be discouraged. If I go, I'm coming back. But right now, I'm going to be going, and I'm going to be preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again. And we're going to be together. All right? He's giving hope. God is still creating you, a new creation. He's sanctifying you and making you holy because you've chosen to follow him. You've chosen to receive his love. Let his love transform you day by day. Learn your lessons day by day and start living out the way God is leading you to live day by day in the meantime. There will come a time when Jesus comes again. Friends, he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. He says, watch me. I'm making everything new. Are you excited to see what more God has in store for you? I'm excited. I want to be, bear witness to this. I want to see it with my own eyes, not just spirit eyes in my heart. I want to see it with my physical eyes one day. When Jesus comes again, guess what? You get to see him face to face, and you never have to be in a fog ever again. God bless you all. Peace.